Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Academic Life, a podcast channel here on New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Christina Gessler, and today we'll be talking about a program called The Connected PhD with my guests, Dr. Alyssa Canelli and Dr. Jonathan Anjaria. Welcome to the show. Thank you. We're welcome. We're happy to be here. Thank you so much. We're delighted to be here. I'm so glad you're here and we get to talk about this wonderful way of looking at the PhD as something that students can really make work for them and for their future career goals. But before we jump into that, will you both please tell us a bit about yourselves? John, could we start with you? Yeah, sure. Um, so I have two roles at Brandeis right now. So I am an, I'm an associate professor in the Department of Anthropology and I'm uh, also the faculty director of professional development for the graduate school. Um, and so, um, yeah, so the, for the past 10, nine, 10 years, I've been teaching in, at Brandeis. Um, I've been director of graduate studies and I have, you know, mentored and taught and interacted with many graduate students. And um, over those years, I saw, you know, what, what's, what's working and what is not working about the graduate programs. Um, and two years ago, or sorry, a year and a half ago, in collaboration with an incoming dean, we um, we really thought that there was just much more. Uh, we needed more attention to like we being a little bit more deliberate about professional development and just providing um, more help for just to enable graduate student students to pers- just to be prepared to pursue a variety of careers after graduation. And so that's what led to uh, us starting this new this new position that I'm in now, which is the faculty director of professional development. Um, and uh, so a lot of my work does interacts intersects with this connected PhD program we'll talk about today, and I guess we can, I guess, we can get into that more um, as we continue with the conversation. We will for sure. I want to give uh, Dr. Canelli a few minutes to introduce herself as well, please. Sure. Um, my name is Alyssa, and um, I did my PhD at Emory University, and I graduated in. Um, late 2016, I believe. Um, and I'm one of those, um, I'm one of the cohort of small but growing PhDs who never um, got a faculty position, but is still making a career in higher ed administration. So my current role is um, the assistant dean of academic affairs in the graduate school. And so I do curriculum and program review, um, lots of things with student um, fellowships and um, a variety of different odds and ends having to do with those things. 
things and also really kind of working, you know, you know, in partnership with the, with the dean of the graduate school to achieve their goals and their vision. Um, one of the things that I, I like to always lead with is that I um, am a mom with twins. My twins are now seven years old and my daughter has trisomy 21, which is Down syndrome. So I'm also active in the Down syndrome community here in Massachusetts. Thank you both for telling us about yourselves. Um, I wonder if we could circle back a little bit um, and we could hear a bit about your own journeys through higher ed. When you were finishing up high school and looking forward, did you envision where you are now? And did you even envision what your college major would be? John, could we start with you? (laughs) That's great. That's a great question. Um, um, So, yeah, so I, well, when I was finishing high school, I was very much involved in the sci- in sciences and and it was like biological some research programs. Um, but then when I started in college, I, I I took an anthropology course, and I just loved the approach of anthropology, um, and so um, I kind of I dived into that as an undergraduate, um, and that so I you know I, I I guess you know one one thing I tell often tell students is like don't use my career trajectory as a model. Like, I don't think I did the right thing. I kind of, like, I just, I was, I was an undergrad. I loved anthropology. So I thought, okay, well, I should just go to anthropology graduate school. And I don't think that's actually a good idea. I mean, it worked. I got lucky. Um, and that's how academic academia often is. is there's just a lot of luck involved. I don't think that's actually like a very deliberate, you know, good way of approaching things. Um, because what I, I realized, like, you know, so I loved the, 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 anthropology i love the research um and so graduate school really worked for me because i liked like you know the phd is um ultimately it's a it's a research degree and i really love the research um and so i got my phd in 2000 2008 from university of california at santa cruz um i was like i you know really i was i was attracted to that program because it was had a, a reputation at the time for kind of doing things differently and doing anthropology differently um and um, after the after 2008, then I graduated and I had um, an assistant professor, a visiting position at Smith College, and then a tenure track position at Bard College, and now I'm at Brandeis. Um, but you know, there's just one. Th- looking back though, is and it's funny just comparing like my own trajectory and what I'm doing now is you know the work I do now is I really focus on the multiple career possibilities. So for example, like if you're interested in if it's research that you're interested in. Um, I, I see now that there's so many opportunities to do research. Like for instance, in anthropology, social sciences, you know, my work is qualitative research and that can be done in in an urban you know, government sex, sex, uh, sector, it could be done in industry, nonprofits and higher ed. But looking back at, from my own, you know, from my own perspective, my own background, like I didn't, I didn't see things like that. Like when I was in graduate school, I was very much, a, I thought that that only research only happens in academic contexts. Um, and the only way to, you know, pursue life where the centers on research, you have to be at a university, and that is such an incorrect assumption. It's totally wrong. I was wrong, um, and so much of my, my work now is just to to correct that that myth, which I, unfortunately I see is still very, uh, very pervasive. Um, I mean, one one regret I have looking back is I wish I had known more about. You know more about all the, the possibility of things you can do with again. I'm sticking with anthropology, but it really could be any discipline, but to think about when you're in graduate school that there's so many things you could do with the the, the skills you're developing and the experience you're getting um and 
Um, I guess I wish I had explored that more in the past. I mean, I love being a professor, but um, I'm, I'm seeing how there's so many other things you could possibly do with, um, you know, the skills that you acquired during graduate school. I want to ask you one more question, and then I want to ask uh, Alyssa to answer the same one I posed to John, which is where do you think that assumption came from? You said the assumption about, you know, you're, you're going to go to anthropology graduate school, and then you're, you're going to go on this academic trajectory. Where, where was that assumption coming from, and why, why did nothing dissuade it as you went forward, do you think? Um, because no, when I was in graduate school, no, okay, it's two things. Like, the external thing is there, there was never any examples shown to me of people doing anthropological, doing anthropology outside of the academy. So if I look back at like, you know, who, who are the invited speakers or who do you, who do you read in class? Who do you talk to? And then all the subtle things of like, who do you, who do people refer to as anthropologists? It's always this, in, this, this world of the assumption implicitly is that anthropology only happens in a university setting. And again, that's totally, that's not true. Most anth- people with anthropology PhDs are not working in university settings. Um, so I definitely like, incorpor- you know, so I, that's where I soaked it up. But I think also, I mean, and then I should also personally, um, I think a lot often that often academia presents itself as um, this ideal space that's like a retreat from the rest of the world. Um, that it's like, you know, often academia represents itself as uniquely ethical, maybe uniquely separate from capitalism and all the other bad things in the world. And um, that's, you know, it's that's a that's incorrect and um it's a mistake it's a mistaken um you know it, it's not very not very productive for, for people's personal lives as well but it is pervasive in academia yes yeah yes yeah um, um yeah sorry uh, uh, thank you so much uh, Alyssa. can you tell us about when you were looking ahead to college and what you thought you'd do afterwards and how much that does or doesn't match your life now sure um this is so fascinating to to listen to just as a side note as a co- you know listening to my colleagues experience because i think that we have we actually come from i think different sides of this but actually have ended up in this in a similar place So my experience is that um, I'm a first generation college student, um, you know, and, you know, I, I don't know about, what was it? Eight years ago, that book Hillbilly Elegy came out and that literally is where I grew up. It's where my family is from. Um, And in the back of my head, I've been, I've been writing a response to Hillbilly Elegy for like eight years um, because of uh, some of the things I take issue with in terms of that book and that, that author's perspective. But, but it really was for me, um, my mother and my grandmother um, were and are, well, my grandmother just passed, but she, she was one of the most brilliant people. I've ever known and without any sort of formal education. Um, So, uh, and my mother also, um, she's a nurse, but she had to work her way through that as a single parent um, night school while I was a child. And um, one of the things that my grandmother and my mother always said to me was that education is the way out. So from the time I was small, it was the education was the way out. It was the way to to move social classes. It was the way to have the life that they always wanted me to have. 
Um, and so when I, you know, I kind of went through the, the college application process in a very kind of haphazard way. I was not, I was in a large, my graduating public high school class was over a thousand. Um, you know, I was just sort of kind of on my own and kind of absorbing information. And I happened to apply to Smith College because I was in love with Sylvia Plath <laughs> and she was the writer and she, she was just, she filled all those angsty things in me. Um, and so I was just, uh, just the idea of going to Smith College where Sylvia Plath was and where her archives were. Um, was the thing for me, and I got in, and it was sim- it was really the 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 single most life changing thing of my life, the single my decision, and, and that and to that extent, my mother and my grandmother were very very true. Um, that educational decision changed my life, and I think from that point on, you know, I've always been a writer and a reader, so I being an English major was completely um, a no brainer for me, and I loved it. I fell in love with every single professor I had. I loved what they. I did. I loved being part of these conversations. And for me, I just, you know, it was a very natural thing to like, oh, I want to be like them. I wanted, I want to do what they're doing. This is this, this is something that I loved. But also on the flip side, as a first generation student, I have been working full time since I was 14 years old. So I have constantly have, I've had so many part time gigs. And I've, you know, I worked in a variety of stores in the mall all through high school and college. And, uh, you know, even after college, I was working in a publishing company. And then I was having a bookkeeping um, side gig as well. And I because I just, you know, you got to pay your bills, you got to do the hustle. And so I think one of the things that I, I internalized was that the hustle, these side gigs were not important. They were the ways to pay my bills, but they weren't going to get me to where I actually needed to go. So eventually when I made it to graduate school down at Emory University doing the PhD, um, you know, I, I still kept doing this, right? So I was, you know, I had a fair, at the time of what was called a, a fairly generous 12-month um, support stipend, um, you know, which is supposed to, you know, you're supposed to do your research and, and your coursework full time, but I was always taking on these other gigs. And those other gigs actually tended to be sort of actually within the university. So I was, it was, you know, working with the Center for for faculty development and excellence on this, you know, working, you know, helping to put on a conference symposium and getting paid for that, um, taking on editing gigs. I was I was a freelance editor. And um, when I kind of and was one of those things where, you know, lots of grad students did this, but it was it was quiet. You know, we never told our advisors or if our advisors knew they kind of looked the other way um, or if you were getting behind in milestones, then it was just sort of like you would, you know, there would be a conversation about you needing to, to refocus your energies and not spend time doing other things other than your research. Um, so kind of fast forward to sort of where I am now and at Brandeis University and sort of and with the Connected PhD, one of the really big things I have seen is sort of that the Connected PhD helps students make those side gigs legible because the key thing is it's those skills and those side gigs, those actual experiences, those actual deliverables, those concrete things that actually help them become much more competitive in a variety of career tracks, whether they're in, whether they're in um, academia or not. But it's those actual experiences and those things like, yes, I can manage deadlines. I can produce a deliverable. I've had experience dealing with bureaucracy and administration. I can do administrative tasks that actually really kind of, I think, charge um, the PhD students' experiences and, and allow them to kind of get, build on more experiences to actually 
chart their course and their um, the career pathway in multiple different ways that are that can both intersect within the academy but out external to it as well. I resonate so much of what you're saying resonates with me. I have a, a strong bias towards how much I I loved going to college and to graduate school and how even with funding, yeah, I had so many side gigs, but like you said, making it legible. I I was also discouraged from talking about it too much. And for many students, even still, there's a concern that if you do, then the university will pull more of your funding. Exactly. And so I, I like that you are making things visible and telling students that their skills matter. I still struggle to talk about the skills that I have because so much of them didn't seem to fit the mold or were actively discouraged from being talked about. Um, So it sounds like a lot of your lived experiences came together in your uh, desire to create the Connected PhD. Can you tell us how this initiative at Brandeis came about? I know it was founded, funded by the Mellon um, Foundation, but how did the pieces come together? Sure. I mean, what exactly happened was that um, <laughs> we at Brandeis, under the, our previous dean, um, Eric Chaslow, um, we were wrapping up our last Mellon grant, which was the dissertation year fellowships that many institutions got. And then Mellon, as the foundation, decided, like, you know what, we're not really having an impact on time to degree here. Um, and so we're going to change our funding strategy for, for higher ed and doctoral institutions. Um, and actually, Len Casuto does a really good job in his book, um, the new PhD kind of explaining sort of the, those transitions in the Mellon Foundation and other um, granting agencies. Um, but essentially we were looking, you know, Eric and I were, were looking at sort of, okay, so where do we, what do we, where do we go next? And he and I had a sequence of multiple conversations um, along with Michael Duddlebach, who was our head of corporate and foundation relations here at Brandeis about, you know, what could we ask Mellon for? You know, we knew that we couldn't go back and ask for the same things, but so we had to kind of think about, think about it differently. And I was coming fresh off of my experiences, uh, you know, in graduate school. And I, and I, and I have to say that both Michael and Eric, um, really treated me, you know, even though I wasn't a faculty member, I was just this kind of the staff position assistant dean, they treated me as an intellectual equal um, and in this project. And so Eric and I, you know, created this idea of this connected PhD, which was also linked to other things that were going on across the across the nation, of course, right? Um, so as I finished up my PhD at Emory, the, the then dean at, at Laney Graduate School, um, Lisa Tedesco, was also working on these kinds of things. Um, you know, these kind of these small mini grants for programs and departments and students to develop these kinds of concrete skills to expand, you know, their own research into pub- into uh, more public um, venues to really make these connections. So so we wrote that grant. Um, and uh, Mellon, you know, was generous and they they funded it. It was a four year grant, $750,000. And they basically said, see what you can do. They were, you know, I think that Mellon is a little um, cynical at this point <laughs> about how how little change has happened in doctoral training programs over the past 20 years. Um, but they are funding these kinds of or they were at the time funding these kinds of seed grants to see to see, you know, can this be the kind of thing where we can harness both faculty and 
students um, to generate their own change instead of coming from the top down. Um, so I think that, you know, we're moving into the fourth year now, which is the final year of the grant. And, you know, we can talk more about it, but I think we've seen some really, really positive progress from our goals and from our metrics about, you know, where we want to go from here. Um, and then um, I'll let, I'll turn it over to John because he kind of came in um, into his role. I think he, I think the first year he may have observed Connected PC rolling out. And then, and then as he came into his role as faculty director of professional development at the graduate school, um, he and I had a very, you know, very natural um, collaboration with this because the goals of what he's trying to do really um, intersect with the Connected PhD. And there's a really nice synergy back and forth with the work that we do. John, would you like to pick up on that? Yeah, sure, sure. Um, you know, you know, one thing that we've, see, we've seen, in, in not just at Brandeis, but at graduate PhD programs across the country is that there is this very sharp divide between the conversations happening uh, in departments or with, between students and advisors on one hand, and then the conversations that happen at the, the graduate school level, like whether it's the professional development office or the, you know, the dean's office or an office, you know, what, what, what Alyssa, Alyssa's work as well. Um, and so there was a need to, to, um, to bridge that divide. I mean, even with what Alyssa just said, we're talking about you know, Alyssa's account of, of this, you know, the, 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 quote unquote, you know, the side hustles or the jobs that, that students take on or any financial issues. I mean, what we saw is that students are often um, not comfortable talking with their advisors about anything financially related. So whether it's a job or even if it's a you know financial concern. And and that's because they're getting the students are getting sometimes explicit or implicit signals from advisors that the that relationship that's this is an out of bounds topic for for their advisors. And so the and students are the assumption is that when students interact with their advisors or other faculty members, it should only be about ideas because um, this assumption of that, just like the, this relationship is all about developing the idea further. But of course, as Alyssa showed, you know, said that that's just, that's just half of the student. I mean, of course we all have you know, personal lives. Students have, of course, you know, obviously finan- finan- there's major financial issues, small stipends, et cetera. And so, um, and then of course, career concerns and career needs. And that, so our goal is to, to bring this together as one package um, and then my, like, just going back to like my position in particular, is conceived to to, to bridge this this very sharp divide between um, the like I don't know like a simple way of putting it is like there's this assumption that like the departmental conversations are all about the ideas and then everything at the graduate school level is about like the practical stuff, um, which I think is is such so ridiculous and such an unproductive divide um, that hurts everybody. And so we're trying to uh, make that connection. So I do that focusing on careers and professional development. Um, I actually, I heard, I think it was in Katina Rogers in your last previous podcast where she said that she talked about a career development that is, um, you know, in along the lines informed by scholarly values. I think that was her, her term, the scholarly values. And I I love that term because that's really how I see it is uh, I don't see that, you know, incur, working with students to to plan for a variety of career options, um, I don't see that as somehow um, a distraction from their scholarly pursuits or somehow like a deviation from it. Um, but actually, it um, it really can enhance and 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 improve their their research. Um, so working with students on thinking about, you know, uh, what what, what, what can, but working back from what their multi, their op career goals are, we can I can I can talk with students about. You know what are the potential um, audiences they might want for their dissertation? 
what are the or even perhaps the for, what are the for, what's the format of their dissertation what is the best way that they would can convey their research um, that can lead to discussions about potential for you know community collaborations or making their work more publicly oriented um, and then also connects to uh, developing more concrete skills that naturally flows to thinking about connections between their work their dissertation work and people perhaps in industry um, so there doesn't have to be this sharp divide between career thinking on one hand and um, scholarly pursuits on the other, that there's a, there's a natural overlap between the two. That's such an interesting point, John, because I, I that whole point about scholarly values informing career and professional development, because one of the things that I've had so many conversations with current PhD students about is how their, their gigs actually help them think about time management, think them about their research, their writing in different ways. So I think it's very common for PhD students to get to this writing stage and, you know, they're, they're kind of, they, they freeze with all, with this perfectionism and sort of the idea that they have to do everything so perfectly. But I think, you know, when you're, when you're working in an administrative role, or if you're doing a quick, you know, six week project for something, you realize that you, you have, it's the deliverable that counts and that nobody expects this, this small term deliverable to be perfect. It's a snapshot in time that's accomplishing two or three things in order to move the, the, the organization or the project forward. And so I've actually really seen students kind of bring that back to their own research and their own ways of managing their academic pursuits and saying, oh, wait a second, like this is always a work in progress. It doesn't have to be perfect. It, you know, it has to serve to, I'm trying to get you know, these two main goals accomplished through this, this paper, this article, this dissertation. And it kind of actually frees them up to kind of look at the work as work, as opposed to looking at it as this sort of transcendental calling and this, this knowledge that they're creating and uncovering. It, it kind of allows them to kind of, I think, maybe kind of depersonalize a little bit and just say, yeah, this this is a this this, this thing that I'm writing. You know, it has a beginning, middle, and end. You know, I can I can track it, I can do it, I can get it done, and move forward and get to the next thing. Can we talk a bit about internships? So many college and grad students uh, do internships, and a large number of internships are not paid. They're volunteer jobs. And that eliminates so many uh, students who don't have um, intergenerational wealth or a partner who's supporting them while they're in school. They can't afford to do an unpaid job, even if it looks great on their CV or it impresses their advisor. And I was looking through your your website about what the Connected PhD offers, and it sounds like you have funding available if a student wants to do an internship that doesn't pay. You can then pay them. Absolutely. Um, And I think that this is sort of... um, you see this at the undergraduate level in many institutions where the career center or, you know, different um, entities on campus, you know, host sort of this, at Brandeis is called the World of Work Fellowships, where where um, there's an understanding that if students want to go into nonprofit organizations for an internship that are unpaid, they can apply for funding at the institution to support them during their summer work. So it's the same kind of principle that we have with the Connected PhD with the understanding that most of our, you know, obviously, you know, in PhD students who are outside of the STEM fields and outside of like the, the computing data analysis fields where you actually can get very, very high paying internships in the summer. 
But in these other fields, you know, you're, you're looking, you're, you're looking at by and large, you know, nonprofit people, organizations that don't have a lot of funding. So this is incredibly, um, I think, empowering for these students to be able to clear their plate. So I think one of the one of the things that we found with students is that they, they've got to make the money some way or another. And, you know, if it's a choice between, oh, I can, you know, I can go, I'm going to go work as a server in a restaurant over the summer and make $6,000 versus I could go have an unpaid internship and, and work on this, this project with this, with this nonprofit. And I can do X, Y, and Z that, that will actually, um, will intersect with my research um, questions, will, will help me develop these skills. And I can also get, you know, funding from the university to pay for that. They would much rather have the internship um, than go serve at a restaurant for for the summer. Um, so I think that that's that's one of the key things that we we recognize for students that you know they need to be able to they have to make the money somehow. And if they can if we can provide the funding so they can have these experiences that move them towards a professional development and holistic goals like this, that's what we can provide. John, what are some of the positive effects you've seen that have happened with the um connected PhD internships? Well, one positive effect is that um, that I've seen students can see the the significance of their research in in a new light. Um, So I'll just begin with one example, like one of the first examples of students I I worked with. um, So she had just completed an internship and um, it was um, with a, a small library and archive. And the difference, and so if, we're, there's such a we, we what we allow through our internships is that students are working um, as an archive like this in this case an example of an archive they're working as an archive or as a, as a staff member in an institution and thinking about um, you know how can they uh, communicate the let's say like there's certain um, documents or certain collections in that in that library and how can um, the the, outer, the the rest of the world like become better aware of, of what of what what's there um, so. The automatic automatically like it, it in that internship the people are um, encouraged to think about audience thinking about how to communicate your scholarship um, in a clear and accessible way um, and then of course also understanding how institutions work of course the funding structure and all that um, and so what the student told me was that they um, as a result of working in this archive as a staff member that they saw their like how the st- other people were seeing the significance of their own dissertation research, and so, like it, they said that, that it, the relevance of their re- of their dis- dissertation research was um, revealed to them in a, in a whole different way compared to when they were talking with their advisors. Because, and this is where it gets to the, why the internships get to the core of you know why it, it can really change in a positive way, change the PhD is that traditionally, a PhD dissertation in the humanities and social sciences means a proto monograph a single author proto monograph so that's the format and the audience is going to be um other scholars or, or maybe a small group of other academics but realistically it's just going to be the the committee and that's it but through these internships it offers the chance for people to see that well maybe there can be an other other audiences for you know my, my research um and maybe that you know my research has relevance beyond the disciplinary conversations um, and then, and that's also, and then also changes in form that when through internships, um, there people are get exposed to you know, learning skills and whether it's um, audiovisual stuff or um, digital media, and so then they can explore about how potentially um, 
are communicating their dissertation research um, through these other mediums to, to enable them to go beyond that proto monograph model. And then finally, of course, there's the, that's then there's like the job. I mean, we haven't been talking about like the key thing too is that all, it opens up job opportunities. I mean, the reason that we promote internships so much um, and is that in the you know in conversations I've had. So for you know, as part of my work, I've I've been interviewing dozens of you know, first alum, Brandeis alumni who are working in industry, and then people in other institutions um, who have PhDs in social sciences and humanities, and. When I ask them, you know, what is one thing that they wish they had done during their PhD, or what one thing that could have, you know, been different that would have helped them in their career, they all point to internships because they say that when you complete a PhD, you have the subject area expertise, you also have skills and, you know, synthesizing lots of information and in writing and all that, and maybe maybe teaching. Of course, that depends on the institution. But one thing that's often employers um, find lacking is they say, well, where is the, where is your relevant uh, work experience. Um, that's something that's often missing in the PhD program. So uh, um, providing internships really fill, fills in that gap. So then students can leave both having the skills as well as having the uh, relevant work experience. One of the things I noticed on your website was that you had offered webinars. And some of the things the webinars did was coach students in how they're going to write a cover letter, how they're going to write a CV. Can you talk about some of these things that you both are doing to help students see in themselves what makes them marketable, what makes them ready to go into the job market? Because I graduated with no clue. (laughs) I'll just out myself. I had no clue what was good about me or what I'd learned. I was just really confused about what I'd been doing um, because I understood it only in an academic context. Yeah, exactly. I mean, because that's that's the culture of of academia. I mean, this is, the, this is the thing. I, I've come to see there's there's two, when we think about a, dis, a given discipline, so let's say anthropology, that's my discipline, that that there's actually two anthropologies and there's two histories, two Englishes. There's the anthropology that's the ideas, which is the books we read, the ethnographies, the theory, and, and all that, and all the ideas. And then there's anthropology, the profession. And this applies for, for every discipline. And so what the mistake happens is that we um, go, you know, through doctoral education, focusing only on the first one, which is the ideas. And then at the end, we realize, oh, wait, there's also this whole thing, the profession, we need to get a job, we need to actually have a salary to pay rent and do all that, and then let alone deal with promotions and everything else. And so the second part, the, the, the anthropology, the discipline as profession gets completely ignored in most in most PhD programs. And that leads to what you just said, which is people don't, you know, I, we're all in the same boat, we don't, you, you graduate, and you realize, like, wait, how do we even do an interview? How do we, you know, I, I often, um, I've observed that often um, in graduate school, we're not even, you know, graduate students aren't even ex- told, like, what is the difference between an assistant and associate professor or a lecturer or an adjunct emeritus? Um, and this is, of course, what people talk refer to as the hidden curriculum. So there's so much that is just implicit that um, is, is not shared. And so that's, that's the goal of these seminars is just to make these implicit things explicit. So I begin with, yeah, um, this this semester, we have a series of seminars that are um, meant just to, to explain the reality of the profession of, of academia. So part of it is um, the academic job process. Um, so we had one seminar on you know how to apply to academic jobs, but um, I really focus on the inner workings of search committees. And I've, I've searched as a faculty member, I've been on many search committees, and also I've 
you know, taught in liberal arts, different kinds of institutions, liberal arts colleges, as well as um, R1. And so I've talked about, you know, what are the conversations like in search committees? Um, how do certain candidates succeed and, and not, and what, what makes them work? Um, and then we're also having other events. Like, so coming up, we have an event called um, What Does a Professor Do? And I'm, I'm really looking forward to that one because that one, we, so we've invited uh, four faculty members and each one represents a different institution. So there's people from community, community colleges, liberal arts colleges, teaching intensives, R1. And we're, I'm just going to chat with them about what are their expectations for the kind of work they do, like how much time are they expected to work, work with students, do admin stuff, teaching, research. And the reason I do this is because I see that um, there's just no, in graduate school, like students don't have an opportunity to really learn about what does it mean to be a professor in different contexts. I would just add to what John said in the sense of like these, you know, these nuts and bolts of like, you know, how to write a cover letter, how to how to think about your how to convert a CB to a resume and vice versa and how they're different. This is like classic, you know, genres, right? They're conventions to these to these genres and like they're actually fairly easy to learn. It's they're not they're not challenging in the sense of, you know, it, it doesn't require a PhD to under to learn how the conventions of a genre. But I think like John said, like so much of this, you know, just you know, I think a lot of faculty just expect um, PhD students to learn by osmosis because honestly we we kind of did. That sort of, you know, if you if you go into any sort of humanities seminar, you know, there's as John mentioned there's just it's, it's about the ideas it's about the critique and you learn by by watching and by, by watching the faculty members do these things as well um and you learn you know through you know through doing it yourself so it's not like anyone actually sits down and tells you okay this is how we this is how a humanity seminar works and here are here are the moves you make and here are here are the things you say and here's here's what happens and so we we actually are really good um at learning you know just through observing and through taking in and teaching ourselves. And so I think that when when people get to this point of like actually, you know, thinking about, you know, CVs and resumes and cover letters and interviewing and networking, they realize like, oh, I, I there's there's no model here for me to to absorb this through, and so they get a little little frozen, I think, and a little bit um, overwhelmed. But you know, when you have these kinds of webinars where you can actually you know sit down and say sit down with a group of people, you know, and you can you record it for you know future reference, you can say, oh, this is the component. Here's how to think about this, you know, this line in the CV and how what it, what it means in the resume, or you know, there are ways that you can actually you know. The, the whole format needs to be upended to trans to translate into a resume into what those kinds of employers are looking for. Um, so I think that those are really helpful, concrete things. And I think one of the things that frustrates me um, is that I have heard so many times brilliant faculty members, absolutely brilliant scholars who who could teach themselves anything in the world that they wanted to. They when they're confronted with these kinds of things, they kind of throw up their hands and just say, I don't know anything about that. I couldn't possibly have a conversation with my advisees about this. It's so outside of my expertise. There's just no way I could offer any support. So let's push you off, you know, to the to the you know career center because it's just not something I could talk about because I just I have no idea what to do with it. Yep, yep, that's true. Yeah, I mean, I'll be honest. It, it what what we're at. What we're calling for here is um, a change in in what it means to be a professor, because I, the, the that response that Alyssa just described, and, and I and I hear the same thing all the time. Um, the faculty are having that resistance because they 
they're feeling this is not what I signed up for. It's not what it means to be. It's not in my job description as a professor that um, for many faculty, there's an assumption that, you know, faculty members mean it's, it's only about we're focusing on the ideas and that's it. And anything else is a uh, distraction or a deviation or somehow uh, something that's, you know, lesser than. Um, and of course it's, you know, there's many structural reasons for that too. It's built in. They look at how all universities do promotions this promotions, it's all based, you know, for tenure track, it's all based on what you publish. It's not based on, you know, your mentorship or students. Like that's, that's seen, you don't, there's no, um, you don't get benefits for, for being a good mentor. I mean, you don't, you don't get a salary raise for that. You get a salary raise for publishing books. Um, so I think, you know, what, what Alyssa and I are saying is like, it will involve a change in what it means to be a professor. And I think um, that that old model is, is not working for students and it's definitely not equitable. Um, and also, as Alyssa said, like it's not that hard to make this change. I mean, I, this is where I can you know share some of my personal stuff. Is like I right now. I mean, my whole fo- so much of my focus is on um, showing students like how to get jobs in industry, for example. And like that's something that I knew nothing about. Like four years ago, five years ago, I had no idea where anthropologists work or where uh, people with a history PhD work. And so I just took it on over the last five years. Like I preached, I approached this like any other research I've done. Like it's my research. I mean, now it's like LinkedIn, I joke like LinkedIn is my research. Now I mean, I focus like every day I'm on LinkedIn, and the reason I'm on it is I want to learn like where do people with social science and humanities PhDs work now, and what kind of conversations are they having? And um, and so like it's not as Alyssa said, it's like not that hard for faculty to do this. What are some takeaways that? you'd like to offer to listeners? I So many students like their PhD program, but they're aware that it's not a connected PhD, it's a disconnected PhD. Um, and there are professors working in those programs who would like to do differently or offer differently, and they have no idea where to start. What about what you have learned and implemented could you offer to listeners so they can start to make change where they are? Well, so it really, yeah, so... For, let's say for if I'm speaking to you know if you are a, a graduate student now listening to this, um, I do want to begin by saying it's not your job to change your department because I have seen that sometimes. Um, it's as a graduate student like you're not getting paid enough to change your department and to deal and to fight that fight. If you're a faculty member, yes, you are getting paid that you should challenge that. And of course, if you're untenured, it's, cha- it's challenging. So if you're a tenured faculty member, then yes, try to make some of these changes. Um, so I can I can speak. So it really matters what audience we're speaking to. So for let's say for graduate students, um, I would say um, please just you know remember that you that the those faculty members who are pushing back against you getting that internship or that job or um, trying to do things differently, like they have a very comfortable salary. They're probably you know they have a semi permanent job if or permanent job even. And so um, graduate students, you know, just do what you think is best for yourself. Number one. Um, and also always think first fall back to like, what is it that you, what was it that you, that you love about, um, academia, you know, your discipline? Like, is it, why are you in grad school to begin with? It's always important to ask yourself that question. Um, and so is it the, you know, are you here because you love reading these books or is it you're here because you want to write one of those books or is it, do you want to teach some of the stuff? And, um, once you have the answer to that question, that could really open up various career possibilities, um, and, and also, it's totally fine if you feel like this is not working for you. I mean, it's totally fine to quit. I, I know people have a lot of anxiety about that, but it's, you know, it, it it's not working for you. It's fine. I mean, it's, um, 
it's, it's, it's you know your life. So let's say, for example, let's say you you really love the um, the teaching part, but not the research. Like let's say you you you, you hate writing, but you really love teaching, and you're a second year of a PhD. Um, then um, you know then look you know look into um, all the possible you know teaching you know what's what's out there. So like for example, consider like community college teaching if that's something that you're really interested in, like teaching in an at access oriented institution. That's something that it's very likely like even your most um, you know, again, faculty who are like most out, you know, encouraging are going to have a little bit of a limited, limited ability to help you because by definition, they're working in an R1. So in your second year of graduate school, if you're interested in community college teaching, you know, connect with community college faculty. It's just like, you know, ask to chat for a few minutes or have coffee, um, talk to find alumni who might work in, in, in those institutions, and then maybe try to get some teaching gigs at a community college. And then most importantly, like really be active in, um, you know, centers for teaching and learning um, in your in your institution, and be active in thinking actively about pedagogy. The reason I'm using that as one example is that that once you figure out what that career goal is, like that's gonna um, allow, uh, that's gonna have you approach the PhD differently than how your committee might encourage you, because your committee is going to encourage you to focus on the dissertation and on that scholarly monograph for academics. And so you need to like have a clear sense that whether or not that's really works for you or not. And I'll be honest, like for me personally, it did work for me. Like I really liked it. Like I'm, I'm literally writing a book. Like that's what I, that's what I do. I write books. Um, so I'm not against book writing. Like I actually, I, that's what I personally do, but I also see that that's not what everyone likes. And as a faculty member, what I'm trying to change is like this assumption that that like just because it works for me, like we should all be able to explore, like take out of academia what we like, and um, you know, really ex- and and um, you know, explore our research, like you know, communicate our research in the way that we find that's personally most appropriate. And I, I was, uh, I'd like to, yeah, ask you the same question, please. Yeah, I think for graduate students, I would um, very much echo what John is saying, and I would also kind of a lot like encourage them to kind of do some. I don't know how to put this self-reflection, some whether and support and whether that that I'm a big fan of therapy. I'm a big fan of support networks and mentors outside of of academia. But one of the things I would say is that is that you, as John said, you this is a this degree is about you and your life. And um, I think that there is a, you know, in the culture of academia, graduate PhD students are infantilized. Um, and, you know, I think there's a, there's a very classic sort of, um, you know, cycle where I think, you know, as you near the end of the PhD program, um, part of what, what's difficult is like all of a sudden, like you've been tied to the opinion of one to three faculty members for five years, and suddenly you now have to exercise your own judgment. And I think some people get, um, or really struggle with that. But I would really encourage, you know, students, you know, someone somewhere, I forget, and I forget the attributions that, you know, become, I, I don't like this phrase, but the CEO of your own career, or the CEO of your own PhD, or kind of think of, you're the agent, you are making the decisions and own it. And you can make those decisions. And I would say, you know, and along with that, you know, it, 
people doing a PhD, they're in the, the time of life where things happen. You know, they're caregivers, they're creating families, family members are ill or dying. There are a variety of different things happening and that it's okay to make decisions based on life factors. Uh, I think that faculty members are, they tend to be, they can be better at supporting this kind of thing um, as opposed to just um, just sort of different, you know, um, career pathways. I think faculty members tend to, you know, at least in my experience and in the around me that, you know, have, are very empathetic for these kinds of life things, but th- these life things can determine choices. And I'll, I'll be very honest here. Um, when, you know, my wife, you know, I, I'm married to a woman. And so when I was looking at going on the academic job market, and then we got pregnant with twins and we knew through a prenatal diagnosis that our daughter had trisomy 21 and also had a major heart defect that needed to be, um, uh, uh, fixed by open heart surgery when she was an infant. It completely took the academic job market off the table for me. I wasn't willing to go chase a visiting position out in Alabama or Arkansas or North Dakota, and, you know, as a lesbian family with a daughter with special needs who would need to be needed to have care of a world class children's hospital. Um, so I made decisions to to that 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 option was not was not you know for me. And so then I looked more, I had a geographic constraint. Um, and so I looked for positions, you know, within my geographic constraint and I still wanted to be in higher ed in some way, shape or form. And that's how I landed at Brandeis doing the administrative work that I'm doing that I actually really love. (laughs) To be honest, I actually think it's a great, it's a great, um, fit for me. And I, and I think, you know, as opposed to John, I think this is kind of where, where it comes into terms of self-reflection is that I'm a person who I actually think at heart, I'm a generalist. I love um, knowing a lot about a lot of different things. And while I loved also the deep dive in terms of my content and the work that I did and the research and the publications I had, there's something really amazing about my, my role where I can actually go into the division of science and I can learn about what's happening in STEM fields and I can support students who are doing that kind of work. I'm just, I'm learning so many things all the time that I love. And I think I realized that in graduate school that I was able to carry forward, which was, I think, really helpful. And I really encourage students to really think about that, you know, that this is this is not just, you know, there's just not one a single pathway, you know, in terms of their own interests, but what are their different strengths and what are things that, you know, you could see working in different forms in different sectors. And then from the faculty side, what I would say is that, you know, the graduate school is not your enemy. <laughs> Um, you know, the graduate school, and I think, you know, and I think most graduate school deans, in my experience, um, you know, they they do care deeply about the mission of the institution, the mission of graduate education. And I think that there are ways productively we've been able to use a connected PhD to drive um, and to support curricular change. And I know that John and I have been a, a little bit negative in this interview about faculty um, and faculty perspectives, but I will say that we have seen some some fairly significant curricular changes from the connected PhD where the faculty are having these hard conversations. They have a couple of change leaders who are, who are like John feel very strongly about these things. And they're, they're doing the work in their department to think about what does the PhD actually do in our discipline? How are we connected to these national conversations? What is the MLA saying about these things? What are the resources of the AHA? What's the job market analysis? Um, you know, how do we look at our curriculum and, and, and rethink 
rethink it? How do we open up space in our requirements to maybe we actually do require an external internship for our doctoral degree? So I think these things are happening. And I would really encourage faculty to sort of be open to these conversations and to you know be open to partnering with their graduate school administration, um, because I think that's one of the things that we're connected to is you know, we're connected on, a, on the national level, level and we can see also patterns across disciplines. I think one of the things that that happens, I think, with faculty is that you that you tend to get to a place where you're like you only understand anthropology or you only understand English. And I can't tell you the number of times I've seen faculty have these aha moments when they're talking to each other across disciplines and they're realizing that maybe English, sociology, history, um, Near Eastern Judaic studies, music composition theory that they actually share some really big things in common about these conversations and and the challenges. And that actually there are some creative things that are happening that they can actually transport to their own disciplines and departments. Thank you both so much for being here today, Dr. Alyssa Canelli and Dr. Jonathan Anjaria, and talking to us about the connected PhD and how we can all make the PhD programs more connected for the students and the professors. I'm Dr. Christina Gessler, and you've been listening to The Academic Life on New Books Network. I hope you will please join us again.